our third message going through Hebrews, and I know we're moving at a pretty good clip. Um, that's intentional. Um, I know that when I was growing up, Brother Jimmy spent, I don't know, probably two years going through Hebrews, and that's that's fine. That's great. There's, there's a lot of substance and drill down that you can do. Um, but for our purposes, what we want is to make sure that we have a high-level understanding about what's being discussed, and so that when we go back and look at individual verses, we know where it falls in the framework. And that's really what we're trying to train each of you to do, is to be able to determine context uh, adequately. Um, we're less likely to be led astray or to or say things that are in error if we know what we're pulling from, where it falls in. Um, so we're going to pick up in chapter 8, but y'all know me, I want to have a running start and make sure you remember where we're did the past two weeks. So we're going to cover two hours worth of two weeks in uh, about two minutes. Uh, you ready? So, chapter one, it talks about how Jesus is in a role that is so much higher than any of the speakers of God beforehand. You had prophets who came and spoke to God, and you had angels who would speak for God, right? Well, he's the current messenger, and he is so much higher than all of them. And it gives all these references, because again, the audience this is being written to is Jews, the ones who know the Old Testament. And so he's using verse after verse after verse to say that here's angels, here's the Son, here's the Christ. Here's, he's, he far outranks. If you're to listen to every word that the angels sent by God, you sure better listen to him. All right. So he's not only higher because he's designated as the Son, he's also higher because he is the Creator. He is higher because he's given an eternal uh, kingdom, both the present world and the future to come. None of those things apply to any angels. Christ is not an angel. Jesus is not an angel. He is God. He is the Son. He far outranks any angel. Chapter 1. Okay. Chapter 2. Now, he's also got the role of a priest, right? Um, and he came in that form, and he humbled himself, right? He came, humbled himself in a form lower than the angels. He took on human form so that he was able to die. That's something angels don't do. They live for, forever. Um, from their creation, they live forever. He humbled himself. He came into a form as a man, where he was able to suffer death on our behalf, right? He was made perfect through his sufferings. That perfect does not refer to sinless. He already was sinless, but he was made complete. And that he now, in that role as high priest, has a empathy and understanding of what you go through on a day basis. Of all the trials and tribulations and temptations that are around you, he experienced it. He did it perfectly but he is complete or perfect in that role of high priest and that he can be merciful and understand what you're going through. It's not detached or removed. It's very close and intimate. All right? He's so, so much so that he's able to call you his brothers. Right? You're part of his family. He came and made you part of his family. All right? And he's victorious in that. He delivered you and me from the fear of death. Right? Before Christ's work, there's a great fear in death. But because of what he's done, we have nothing to fear in death. He's taken away. That song we sung, the sting of death is gone. It is. He's defeated both Satan and by the fear of death by his work. And so he is a merciful and faithful high priest. So, you know, the first chapter, you really get to him as the messenger. That, that kind of role, we could describe it as the apostle. That's what's described in chapter 3. And then second, it introduces to you as his role as the high priest. All right, and then chapter 3, it reminds us of that, of, that he is... Uh, our, he wants you to consider it. Look at it. The apostle and high priest of our calling. You know, who is that special delegated person sent by God to speak on God's behalf? Jesus is. And he's the best speaker that we've got. Anyone else who came before, far is beneath him. And he's also the best high priest. All right? And so he has this as a combo role. I mean, and then it goes through to establish that he outranks even Moses. I mean, Jews obviously hold Moses in very high regard. He was the prophet that gave them that was given the law, and they had he had to turn around and speak it to them. And so he's you know you know worthy of their respect. But Christ far outranks Moses. All right, he's got a combo role of both the prophet as the apostle and as the priest. You know, Moses didn't have the role as priest, right? That was split off and that was just given to his brother Aaron. There wasn't one man that had both that, but Christ has both. So he surpasses Moses. He surpasses him in description of being as a son is higher than a servant. Well, Christ is a son and Moses was a servant. He was a good servant, but he was just that, a servant. So Christ outranks him as being the son versus a servant. And not only that, he outranks him because you know Moses worked in the house that he was given. Right, but the son, as the creator, he built the whole house. He's got it all, and so he far outranks him as the creator. He outranks him as being the son rather than just 
a faithful servant. All right? And then a theme that's found throughout the scriptures that we've looked at thus far is this warnings against abandoning the faith. There's neglecting the truth of our great salvation. There's standing fast in the confidence of the truth and to the end, um, lest there be any of us among us who has a heart of unbelief. There's warning after warning after warning of hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. And you could think again, again, think about your context. You, If you were a Jew back in this day, I mean, the, the sacrifices in the temple are still going on at this time, right? You've left your understanding of the Old Testament and you've, you've heard about Christ and you've followed him, you've pr- professed a faith in him that he is the Christ and you're a believer and you're walking down that road and every other one person in your culture doesn't believe that, what are they trying to convince you to do? Go back, right? That's, that was Paul when he was still Saul. That was his whole ministry was to cause havoc to the church. This is a sect that has to be stomped out. And so there's a lot of pressure on them to walk away from this. And so it's a constant reinforcement over and over and over. Hold fast your confidence in the faith. Hold fast in the truth that Jesus is who he says he is and he fulfills all the types and shadows that were pointed in the Old Testament. Stand fast, stand fast, stand fast. Don't walk away from what you've said that you believe and that you have started down the road um, professing. All right? Sorry, it's taking longer than two minutes. We got the first three chapters in two minutes. All right. Chapter four, uh, we're introduced to the fact that there is a rest, a rest that remains for us. All right. There was the rest that was given on the day that, that God ceased from his labors on the Sabbath day. He says it's not that rest. There's a rest when they went into the land of Canaan. Not everyone got to go in, right? Because there was their unbelief. They had to die in the wilderness, right? He says, but it's not that rest because there's a rest that was promised that was written way after they'd already gone in, and that's the rest that we're looking forward to. That's that promise that we have, that inheritance of being with God when we've ceased from our labors and we're with Him for eternity. That's the rest that we are uh, looking forward to. All right, and so in the meantime, while we're waiting for that rest, we're still here, and we have that faithful high priest, again, that we've introduced to. Again, it says, let us hold fast our profession that we have that great high priest who's passed in the heavens, And we have that high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was tempted like as we are, and yet he did it without sin. And so the admonition there to us in verse 16 of of chapter 4 is, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you're going to have struggles. You're going to be times when you're just beat down. He says, you've got an access point. It's by Christ. You get to go there into the throne room. So draw into it. Okay? Then in chapter 5, um, he lays out very clearly the vast superiority of Christ in his role as high priest. There were high priests under the law, but he outranks all of them. He was specifically chosen by God. Um, he is sinless, unlike the other priests who had sin, and they were subject to having to offer gifts for themselves and for the people. Um, that he's merciful, um, and that his role is going to endure forever. This is not one that death is going to cut short. Um, So he has been made perfect by his suffering, as we talked about. He's been made complete. And by it, he became the captain or author of our eternal salvation unto all them that believe him, unto his his children. So as he's starting to build this framework for how Christ is this great high priest, and he's going to show you in the Old Testament of how that has already been set up in Melchizedek, first he has to pause and say, all right, guys, there's a lot of hard things I've got left to say, but it's going to be difficult for you to understand because you're slow of hearing. You're, you're dull. You're lazy. He says, when you should be teachers, you have need that I come and teach you again the basics. Right? And he says that um, we need to, we, basically, we need to grow up. We need to get past those basics. And so in the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to say, these are all these basic doctrines that we're going to move forward. I'm not going to reestablish them here. Um, the Laying again, not the foundation of repentance from dead works. I mean, we have to repent from our dead works. We're saying we're following Christ. You cannot continue in the old ways. It's a basic doctrine. It's it's square one. But it doesn't stop there. Not laying again that, not going of faith towards God, not reestablishing the doctrine of baptisms or laying on hands or, or the resurrection from the dead. Many times in the New Testament, they have to say, yes, there's going to be resurrection from dead. That's such a basic doctrine. He said, there's more things that you need to know that are the more mature things that you need to be complete, that you've got to understand those basics, but we're going to go on. So, so this is what we do 
if God permit. And then he's going to pause for a minute and talk about those who have abandoned the faith, the ones who had professed to be following Christ, who had you know been baptized and these Jews, and they've they've stopped. He's saying, "Don't waste your time, really, trying to gather them back." That they've walked away, um, and they're crucifying them to themselves the Son of God afresh. I mean, it's like they were standing there on that day, yelling, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" And then you know, Pentecost, these people who were pricked to the heart, and then they wanted to follow him. It's like you've gone back to that hill again and are crucifying it again. But he says of those that he's writing to, he says, but I'm persuaded of better things of you. Not that you're going to walk away and that you're going to abandon what you profess to believe, but rather that you are going to endure, that you are going to be um, fast to the end. We're persuaded of better things of you and of the things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So though we had to break it up. So he's going to give them a charge. All right, The charge is, I know you're working hard. That you've been diligent, you've been showing labor and ministering to the saints. He said that you did that and that you're still doing that. That's good. However, I want you to show that same diligence to the full assurance of the hope to the end. All right? What's that mean? I want you to have that same diligence to the truth of what you believe. Okay? Not being the lazy babe in Christ who can only have the bare minimum milk level, superficial, or important basic doctrines. Don't, don't minimize that but there's more to learn so that you can have the full picture of what Christ has done and have that assurance of that. He says, I want you to show that diligence in that. Okay? Have the diligence to show the full assurance, the full consolation, the full hope that you have until the end. Why? That you be not slothful. Don't be slothful in that, but rather be followers followers of them or imitators of them who've gone before, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right? This is going to be a pattern um, found throughout the rest of this letter is that living by faith, patiently waiting, and then eventually you receive the promise. The promise is that rest. The promise is being with God and glory. That's coming. But what do you do now in the meantime? You live by faith and you patiently endure. Okay, That's your pattern. Living by faith, patiently waiting, and the promises come. They don't come because you're living by faith, that you live by faith because God has given you that faith and that you are going there where He's promised you. He has put His love upon you. He's given you His faith and this is how you live it out. This is what um, it should look like. And then he gives an Old Testament reference there about how Abraham, he fit that that pattern. And not only that, God made a promise to him. He even confirmed it by an oath. All right, and the idea in man's world is that if I make a promise to you, that's good. But if you really want to make sure that um, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, you have me swear it as an oath on top of it. So you've got a promise and you've got an oath. Well, that's man's thing. And so God willing to show a strong assurance to you, not because he was going to break his word or his promise. His promise was enough. But so you had just this super abundance of extra assurance that not only has he promised, He's also sworn it by an oath. And what were those promises? Well, the promises that Christ is who he says he is. That thou art a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The verse that comes to the clause right before that is that the Lord swore by himself. And when you swear, you swear by something that's greater than you. Well, God can't, there's nothing greater than God, so he has to swear by himself. So we have that strong consolation, right? That by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon that hope set before us. You have a hope. The hope is those promises. The hope is being with Him. The hope that Jesus is who He says He is and that He's accomplished what He is. We've got that strong hope and you can lay hold upon it. And that hope, it's described, this is a great word picture, as being an anchor for your soul. So imagine wherever you are that you've got an anchor. you know where that anchor lies? In the very throne room of God. Listen to it. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It's not going to come out. It's not going to come loose. It's not going to change. Which entereth into that within the veil. Into You can't see heaven right now, but it's able to go in there. Whither the forerunner for us is entered. Who's the forerunner? Jesus, right? The high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then, so he's had that pause. He starts to tell about those harder things. All right, so here's a harder thing. He says, in the Old Testament, God was setting up a type for how He was going to bring in this new 
better high priest, and he did it in the form of the appearance of this random fellow, right? You don't see where he comes from. You don't see what happens afterwards. God just puts him in on the scene. His, his father's not recorded. His mother's not recorded. His death isn't recorded or birth. It's just he's there. It's kind of like he always was, right? And that sets up the type for how the new high priest, which is Christ, is going to far outrank the old, which is under the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, Abraham. And so you have the better, Melchizedek, who blesses Abraham. Abraham, who God had given him wonderful promises, right? He was going to be a massive nation. He was going to have these people. It says the less is blessed of the better. It shows that Abraham is subordinate. Even Abraham, right? So Jesus outrakes the angels and all the prophets and Moses and even Abraham. You want to think about a man that you know the Jewish culture would put on a pedestal. It would be Abraham. Well, he far outranks him, and God did this all in a type and shadow of that Christ would come after the order of Melchizedek, that he was a priest who won't die, and he outranks the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So what? Ten minutes? <laughs> now, I paused last Sunday at the end of chapter 7 because chapter 8 starts with a summary. <laughs> Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. All right, so when we have such a high priest, that such is referring back to what we've just read for the description of what type of high priest do we have? We have a sinless high priest. And this is all at the end of chapter 7. We have a sinless one who won't die, right? All the other priests in the Old Testament, they, they, they died. They had to be replaced. Um, so we have a high priest who's holy, harmless, this is 26 or 7, undefiled, separate from sinners, and that he is not part of sinning, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, and that was, that was part of the thing. Is that every day there was a sacrifice given. And they had to give when the high priest went in, first for his own sin and then for the people's. But this our high priest did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, that word that God promised, the Lord swore by himself, thou art a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he made him a priest which is since the law. That was written in the time of Psalms. That was way after the law was given. This is written after. That which is sitting makes the Son a high priest who is consecrated or complete or perfect for that role forevermore. That's the high priest that we have. Stand fast. Acknowledge the truth. Don't be tempted to try and go back to the old way. It's not better. You've got something infinitely better here in this high priest. All right. Not only that, the person and his role as high priest is better. Also, where he works is better. Right? You've got the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a big word. It means tent. Right? In the wilderness, they set up a tent. That's what they were told to do, and that was where they'd have to do their work. You'd have two rooms in it. A bigger room where you do some of the work on an everyday basis, and then you have a smaller room called the Most Holy. That's where the high priest would only go in once a year. Right? And him by himself. But he, our high priest, not only is better in all the ways about him as a person and in his role, where he works is better. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched. The other ones, whenever they're walking through the wilderness, the men would have to stop. They'd set up the tent. They'd bang the stakes. They'd have to put it up. You know, Men are involved in all that. They had to create it. They had to stitch it. Men did it. And that was where the men worked. Christ didn't work in that. Right? He works in the, the true tabernacle. That's the shadow of this is the real, all right, which the Lord pitched and not man, all right? And we'll come back to that. It's gonna, he's going to expand on how the idea of where he works is better. But first he's going to talk about um, the idea that um, the gift that he has to offer is better. All right? For every high priest is ordained to offer gift and sacrifices. That was their job. They had to give offerings to the Lord. They had to minister to the Lord, and they did it in the form of gifts and sacrifices, um, whether it was bread or whether it was animals, whatever it was under the law, they had to do it. It says, Wherefore it is of a necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So Christ had to have something to offer too. Right? It says, Because he was not set up to operate under that old system. 
For if he were on earth, seeing he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So it says if Jesus were still on earth, he's not a Levite. It wouldn't have been his role to go in and offer those gifts and sacrifices. Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah. Right? Nothing said about Judah of being a priesthood. That's why he's feeling this type of Melchizedek. Right? So, there are those priests currently. What that tells me is that this letter was written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed because that's when those sacrifices stopped. That's when the Lord put it away. And you want to know how effectively he put away? That thing has not been rebuilt in 2,000 years. He put it away. So, if he were on earth, if Jesus were still on earth at this point, he wouldn't be a Levitical priest offering in that man-made temple or tabernacle. All right? Seeing if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. You know, that role is already fulfilled. And why are they there? Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. They're pointing to the real. All right? We can't understand everything there is about heavenly things, but God gave us some training wheels, basically, if here is some small thing that you're going to do, and it's going to point to the real thing that I'm going to do. Okay, so they were a, a, an example of what uh, God would do. Now, how's he going to prove that? He's going to go back to Old Testament Scripture and say, "Here's where it says that." As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for all right, here's your quote: "See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee on the mount." He's quoting Exodus 25 and 40. Okay? It's a pattern. Now, when you first read that, when you're back in Exodus, you say, well, he told them what to do, and so he's following a pattern or the plans or whatever. Okay, I can understand that. But that pattern word has meaning. The meaning is that it's patterned off the real. Here's the little type and shadow that I want you to build. All right? So he's explaining the Holy Spirit through the writer of the Hebrew letters, explaining the symbolism of that word. If you want to spiritualize things in Scripture, make sure it's Scripture telling you that it's spiritual. My guess and your guess without Scripture to back it up is no good. But when it says this is what it means, that that you can rely on. All right. So here he's explaining what that meant. All right. So those things are under the shadow. Christ wasn't operating the shadow. He's operating in the real. So it says, verse 6, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, a more wonderful service to God, higher than that man-made stuff, more than those types and shadows. But now he is the mediator of a better covenant. All right, we're going to introduce, so we talked about his better role, his priest, his better gifts, his better locations. Not only that, he's not even operating under the old covenant. He's operating under something new, a better covenant. A covenant is basically a contract. A promise, something that won't be broken. All right, it's based upon promises. All right, the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. You want a key word for the book of Hebrews? The word better. Everything about Christ and what He's done and what He's accomplished is better. All right, so He's going to establish that there is a new covenant. All right, and again, you can think about these these Hebrews at the time if they're receiving this letter and they're struggling. Do I continue to follow Him or do I go back to the ways that I've always known? He's going to say, look, even the Scriptures themselves pointed that there's something new coming, that there was going to be a new covenant. So he's going to do that by first stating the premise. If the first covenant had been faultless, okay, let's assume that. If it had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So if the first one was, you know, the Old Testament Levitical law, if all that was perfect, he said, then there'd be no reference in Scripture for a second one. And then he's going to show him where there is a reference. So if there is a reference, if there is fault, then that makes sense of why there's something better coming. All right? For finding fault with them, all right? So he's showing that where there was fault with the first covenant, he's going to quote a long quote here. This is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. All right? So it's going to start here at um, behold in verse 8, and it's going to run all the way down to verse 12. All right? This is one passage from Jeremiah. So I'm going to read the whole thing. And then we'll talk. For finding fault with them, finding fault with that first covenant, he saith, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, old covenant, in the day which I took them 
by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant, new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind I, and, and write them in their heart. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the great. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In the quote. And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first one old. So here you've got a reference to, it's not going to be like the covenant that was before, it's going to be a new covenant. He says, by calling it a new covenant... He's made the original one an old one. And what are you going to do with the old one? Now that which is decayed or has become obsolete and waxes old and is ready to vanish away. It's ready to disappear. And when will that finally disappear? We're kind of in this transition period. It finally disappears at the destruction of the temple when the Romans just completely wipe it out in 70 AD. And it's, doesn't, it's not reinstituted. Okay, that's how that, that's fulfilled. But it's ready to vanish away. So he says, Scripture itself says that there is a new covenant coming. And here, that's what we're talking about. It's the covenant that Christ came. All right? It's a better covenant. All right? It's not just natural Israel and these carnal promises and a carnal land, but it is something far greater and beyond just natural Israel. It includes you and I, Jew and Gentile. All right? So we've got this whole block of language, and then he's going to explain it. All right? It says, Verily... The first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly covenant, a worldly sanctuary, right? So again, we're talking about the doing, the deeds that are under there. How do they minister to God under the Old Testament? So he's going to set it up and see how Christ is even better in the new, all right? So what did you have under the old? And this is going to give you a very short summary about what happened in uh, take the Levitical law and compress it down into just a few sentences. He's going to give you just your brief intro into um, the worldly um, tabernacle. For there was a tabernacle made, the tent, wherein was the candlestick. You had a candlestick inside. You had the table, and on the table you had the showbread, and that's called the sanctuary. Right? That's room one. Right? And then you'd have a veil. And behind that veil, which would separate it off, you'd have a smaller room, all right? And that room was called the holiest of all. And in there you had the golden censer, because when the high priest went in, he had to burn incense and he had to obscure it in there because he couldn't go in and look clearly and plainly at the ark either. He had to burn incense, all right? So you had the censer in there. Then you had the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically a golden box with some really fancy decorations on top of the cherubims. What exactly they look like, I can't tell you. Um, but here it says that you know the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round with the gold, where inside was the golden pot with manna. Right? They had saved some manna from when they were feeding in the wilderness as a memorial of what they'd done. Aaron's rod that budded. There was that Dathan and Abira dispute on someone who was trying to say, well, we should be priests too, and there was a uh, Lord got their attention. We can talk about that later. But the end result is that he gave all the tribes a staff and y'all put them in there and see what happens. Well, the tribe that he chose, which was Levite's tribe, Aaron's tribe, that rod, that dead stick, bloomed and budded and grew almonds. And so the Lord was saying, this is the one that I choose. So the rest of y'all sit down and hush, basically. So that was in there. And then you had the tables of the covenant. So you had the Ten Commandments, not the original, but the second copy, because Moses broke the original. And over it, so you had on top of it, you had this mercy seat, the covering. And that had the cherubims of glory, of which we cannot now speak particularly. All right, So this is, that's kind of your rough entry into what that was of the natural tabernacle. The two rooms, you had the stuff outside for ministering regularly, the stuff inside where you go in and minister once a year, and just the high priest would do that. All right, so verse 6. Now... When these things were thus ordained, the priest always went into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. All right, So that was a daily entering into that first portion. They had things they had to do. They had to swap out the bread. They had to turn on the candles. They had to turn off the candles. All the things they had to do, they would do that regularly. All right, But into the second, that most holy, that smaller one where the ark and everything was, he couldn't go in any time he wanted to. Um, into the second, the high priest alone, no one else. There was no helpers. There was no substitutes. It was the high priest alone. Once every year, 
not without blood. He had to come in with blood of the sacrifice each time, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. All right. Then he's going to tell you what all that means. All right. Here's that spiritualization. The Holy Ghost. This is the, the, the Holy Ghost is signifying this signifying why it's set up that way. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It wasn't revealed yet. It wasn't visible. The way into the holiest of all is Christ, and He had not been revealed yet. And so it's saying the way is still closed as far as your understanding. Okay? It was not manifest. While as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. All right? What was the first tabernacle? What did it mean? It was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make Him perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. All right, so these were carnal services. It was just services of the flesh. It was a shadow. It was pointing to something until this time of the Reformation. Well, the Reformation didn't happen with Luther and all those other folks from the Catholic Church. The Reformation happened when Christ came. You know what Reformation means? It means to straighten thoroughly. Okay, he came, Christ came and he straightened us out. And he's the only one that could, all right? So all those things stood as shadows of pointing to he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's come, all right? Hebrews, as you're listening to this, he's come. But Christ being come, present. Back then he hadn't come yet, it was still hidden. Now being come, a high priest of good things to come, all right? There's good things still to come, right? That's that rest that we're looking forward to, that inheritance, he is Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. So you've got the better high priest. You've got the better location and the better tabernacle. Not made with, with hands, that is to say, not of this building. It's not of the physical temple that was still in existence then. It wasn't of the tabernacle back in Moses' day. It was the real tabernacle, the real sanctuary that is heaven in itself. And he had better gifts. Says neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Now he said all that in the Old Testament that high priest had to go in once a year, and he had sacrifices of animals, their blood. He said he didn't go into that physical temple with their blood. He went into the real, which is heaven, and he didn't go with someone else's blood. He went with his own, right? And by that, he obtained having obtained eternal redemption for us. All right? Go back up to verse 9. They did all those sacrifices on a daily and monthly and annual basis, and the result is it could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscious. It couldn't do the job. It couldn't do it. And yet he did it, and he did it once, and he obtained eternal redemption for us. All right? For the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth for if I left out a word for if alright so it's assuming this for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh and this was the rules that they had to do all these carnal washings well they had this particular red heifer and you kill her and you burn her and you take her ashes and you mix it in the water and you sprinkle it on somebody who was unclean and you have to go through all this process and at the end of it the priest would declare your flesh clean all right so if that could do that for your flesh we want to talk about your conscience and your heart so if that could do that how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God? Like he offered himself, he had no sin. Through the eternal spirit, he offers himself to God, which is so much better than those other meager sacrifices. If they can cleanse the flesh and you know, be declared pure under that, can it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He can. The blood of Christ, which he offered himself, can purge your very conscience so that you no longer desire in the same way to live that life of being dead and trespassing and sin. Before, that's all you knew and that's all you had and that's what you wanted. But he can give you, and he does give each of his children, that new life and purge your conscience so that you can serve the living God. All right? 
A servant with the understanding that he's put those sins away. There's actual remission. All right? For this cause, because he did that, because he cleansed you, because he's obtained the eternal redemption, because he's purged your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, for all this cause, for this cause, he's the mediator of a new testament. The mediator is the go-between, go-between God and man. Right? He is the mediator of the new testament. Right? What's a testament? A testament is a, a fancy word for a will. Right? It is a contract that becomes effective upon a death. Okay? Before the death, that contract can be changed. After the death, it's permanent. There's no additional, you can't ask the dead guy to make any changes or whatever. It's permanent. All right? So you've got this covenant that here it's going to also be described as being a testament. So you've got a contract that is effective upon a death. All right? For he is the mediator of the New Testament. That implies there was an Old Testament too. We'll see why we refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament in just a second. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. All right. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, he's the mediator because he was the one who died and made that testament enforceable. And what did he accomplish? The redemption, the payment in full, the putting away of all the transgressions that we know exist and occur because of the First Testament. The Old Testament law, it was to show us really just how bad we are and how bad we were in need of a Savior. So it shows what the problem was, and here he's come and he has given the solution. That they which are called, is it everybody? No, it's they which are called. The ones that God has called, those that are children, those that he gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones that he calls that they might receive the promise of eternal Inheritance. All right. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. All right. This is saying, if you have a will, for it to be enforceable, the guy who wrote it has to be dead. All right. There has to be a death for it to be a testament. All right. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Right? We understand that. You go try and probate somebody's will before they're dead. You know, the judge is going to look at you like you're crazy. They may throw you in jail for fraud or something, but. All right? We understand that naturally. And this is, this is a man's construction here and how we do things that God is using to illustrate what he does. All right, For a testament is a force after men or death. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. You can't go probate that will while the testator is still alive. The testator is the one who's written the will. Whereupon... All right, so he says, all right, let's look at the Old Testament. Let's see if this pattern exists there too. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. There was some death involved in the type and shadow testament, that first covenant with natural Israel. Well, where did that come into play? Well, he's going to explain what happened back in, uh, I think it's Exodus chapter 24. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to law. So he reads the whole thing to everybody in attendance. He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, it's a reed, and sprinkled both the book and all the people. So you've got the covenant that God gave him in the law. You've got this blood of these dead animals. You've got the means of sprinkling it with a hyssop, and he's sprinkling the book. He's sprinkling the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. This is the blood of the covenant, the promise. But here you've got death involved, making it a testament. Moreover, so not only did he sprinkle the law on the people, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost, and this is going to explain that under the law, almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. What's remission mean? It means freedom. It means pardon. You cannot have the pardon without blood. All right? And everything under the Old Testament was that shadow pointing of what would come, who would come, and what blood would be sufficient and perfect to be able to accomplish that. All right? It says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven, so that's referring to the Old, Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament goats, all that, that they should be purified with these. Calves, goats, all that things. It was necessary 
for those carnal ordinances that they would have a carnal purification system, right? It didn't really accomplish, but it set up what it would, what would. But the heavenly things, the true, the perfect, themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's why Christ didn't offer the blood of any animal. It wasn't a good enough animal, wasn't a good enough sacrifice for the heavenly. Those are just for the carnal types and shadows, right? Let me um, let me give you an illustration. And this is not a perfect illustration, but it's the best one I got. My son's like Legos, right? So if they built a model rocket ship and they put those little orange flames at the bottom, is that thing going to fly? No. What if they put more flames and more? No. All right, now you have that sitting there and you've got your, your model and you've got your flames and then you go down to the cape and you look at the real rocket ship and you see what that thing can do and you look at the size of the flames and the magnitude. Everything under the Old Testament was just the type. It was just the little model. It, it kind of looks like a spaceship. It's got flames. It kind of gets the point across of what's going to happen. <laughs> but the real, you can't even compare. Is this ever going to lift off and fly? No. That one, if they've done their job right, it messes. <laughs> but it'll fly. It can accomplish because it's real. It is effective. This could never redeem you from your sins, but it could point the one who's coming that will. And he did. Okay? And that scale of magnitude is there too, right? Those are technical terms. Good luck putting that in your notes. Alright? So Christ didn't come to enter into that Old Testament little model. He didn't go into the Lego room. Right? No. He's not entered into the holy places made by hands, which are just figures of the truth, but into heaven itself. To now to appear in the presence of God for us in that role as high priest. He's continually appearing before God, interceding on our behalf. He only had to do it once. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entering into the holy place every year with the blood made by others. That was it. Every, every year they had to go in they had to put on that one little, one little Lego flame. Each year you had to put on one. He said, no, he only had to do it once. Because if that was the case, then he must have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But that's not true. He says, but now once. At the end of the world. Everyone ever tell, oh, we're going to get to the last days. Y'all were in the last days. Right? Christ has come. There's been the Reformation. Everything after that until he comes back is this is the last days. This is the end of the world. There's no new revelation coming. And that's why you can quickly dispose of a lot of the false teachings that are out there. Well, an angel came and told me this other thing of, I'm sorry, they told you a new gospel. The gospel's already there. There's nothing more to be accomplished other than Christ coming back and reigning and bringing us to him. I mean, there's, there's nothing else left to be done. We're in the last days. And that's okay. All right, but now once at the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin, to cancel it, to divinely pardon it. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he did it. He did it once. And he accomplished it. And in another mirror between his humanity and us, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. That's, hey, that, that's life, right? Any of y'all going to have more than one life? I'm going to come back as a cat. No. Right? That's all garbage. God has given you one life. You were to use it to His glory and serve Him for every minute. And then you die. And then you don't get anything else here till the judgment. Right? Your spirit will go where He's designated it. But once. Right? That's the pattern. Men live and they die. And after that you have the judgment. It's not this cycle or anything. But Christ, so Christ, was offered once to bear the sins of many. He came and did it once. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he came, he died once, he's resurrected, and he lives and reigns today, and you'll see him again at the judgment. Right? He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Does that mean uh, that everyone's not going to see him? I don't think so. But there's going to be a difference between those that are looking for him now. The looking for, that Greek word in Strong's, it says to expect fully. Are you fully expecting that one day you'll hear that trump and see your Lord? That's very different from how the rest of the world who doesn't think 
he is who he says he is, and they mock and they they make fun of him, and he's he's nothing. He's just a cartoon character that you can, you know, tease. It's a very different looking for and expecting that every knee is gonna bow, but not everyone's gonna be enjoying the moment. <laughs> right? So those that are looking for him, you know, expecting him fully, he'll appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You've lived by faith, you've waited patiently. Now the promise has come, bringing them in unto salvation. Alright, so we've made up chapter 10. We're still going, right? For the law was just a shadow, right? That's what it was. It was a shadow. A shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, alright? It's not the real. And can never by those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect, alright? We get that. That's your Lego ship. Versus the real. And he asked the question, he says, because if they had been effective and able to do that, why'd they keep doing it? They would have stopped. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. He says that if they'd been effective, they would have stopped. They didn't stop, they continued going. It showed that it was just a type. Christ has done it once, that's why he doesn't have to do it more than once. It's because he's done it. He's purged your conscience from those sins. But in those, the sacrifices there, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, a recollection again, made of sins every year. Why'd they do that? Because it's not possible. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? Now he's going to pull to Scripture and say, and this is where Scripture says that it's not possible. And he's going over to Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, here's your quote, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. End of quote. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. All right, now he's going to explain it. It says, Above, that quote I just gave, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither hast thou pleasure in them. All right, so there's two negative references to these sacrifices offerings. I would not, and I had no pleasure in them. He explains what that means. It says, Which are offered by the law. There's no pleasure to God in those because they couldn't do it. Right? He's explaining here what God was leading up with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He wrote this in Psalm 40 of. Again, pointing to the new. There's no pleasure in those old, but what is there? That body. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Who's the I? Christ. Right? The body that he's prepared is that physical body that he came that he's going to offer himself instead. Old has no pleasures, but I come, Christ come, to do thy will. The Son came obedient to do the Father's will. All right? Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, the first covenant, the first sacrifice, the first tabernacle, all that, and he puts in the second, the new, the better. That he may establish the second. All right, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified. All right, it's kind of a weird expression. By the which will. What is it referring to? I've got an arrow drawn from that verse 9. I come to do thy will, O God. By the which will, God's will, by God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's explaining how that Psalm 40 is perfected. That body, I come to do thy will, the Father's will, that he would be effective in sanctifying his people. And he did it by his own body. Okay? Does this make sense? Good. Everybody still with me? Soldiering on? Alright. Now he's going to say um, the difference between the role of ministering in the Old Testament scheme. You had every priest standing daily, ministering, working, oftentimes offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. There was a very repetitive process. You had a sacrifice that had to go down in the morning. You had ones that had to go in the evening. You had ones that had to go every month or the Sabbath. I mean, it's just over and over and over and doing the same thing, right? Which can never take away sins. 
We know that. We know that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but they had to do it over and over again. That was the old, all right, that you may be tempted to go back to. That's the old. But now this man, after he offered one sacrifice himself for sins forever, doesn't have to do it again. He did it once forever. Does he continue to stand? No, he sat down on the right hand of God. Again, how much higher than he is of everybody else? There is no one else who has been told to sit down on the right hand of God. All right, His work was accomplished in that he put away those sins and he sat down. What's he doing there now? From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. You can see that was Psalm 110 verse 1. Right? That no angel had been told that to sit on my right hand until thine enemies be made thy footstool. But that's what he is and that's where he's at. And that expecting means awaiting. He's awaiting until that judgment day when everything will be put under his feet. This is your high priest. This is your king. Right? Because everything is subject to him, both in this world and this world to come. All right? For by one offering he hath perfected or completed forever them that are sanctified. Right? One offering. He did it. He has made you complete and perfect. There's nothing that you have to add into it, praise the Lord, because you mess it up, just like I would. And there's nothing that anyone can take away from it, including yourself. He will get everything that he pays for. Every single one of his children that the Father gave him, he will receive. All right? He says, wherefore... All right, we're going to use another Old Testament example to prove this. Wherefore, the Holy Spirit is also witness to us. He's saying here the Holy Spirit, by the writing of Scripture, is a witness to us. All right, here's the witness. For after that he said before... Maybe be confusing. After that he said before. So he's referencing back to a quote that he gave before. And he's going to look at a portion later in it. And what he's quoting here is in uh, Jeremiah. Right? Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah 31. I'm not exactly sure. It may be verses 34, 35. Anyway, you can look it up. But either way, Jeremiah 31. He's portioned the later portion of that quote. The Holy Spirit is saying, after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and into their minds will I write them. And there's, this is the key phrase that he's going to use to establish that he's accomplished the work of putting away the sins. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. All right. So he used that quote earlier to establish that there is a new covenant. Now he's using it to establish that God has said he's not going to remember your sins anymore. Well, why is he not remembering your sins? Because Christ was effective at what he did. All right? Now, where remission is, where there's pardon, where it's freedom, where it's put away, right? where remission is, there is no more offering for sin. Christ was going to come, and he was going to put away sin, and the offerings would stop. There's nothing more to do. Don't be tempted to go back to that old way, it's not there. It's not. It's been put away. The new has come, and it has accomplished it. All right. So, because this is all true, you who follow Christ, you who believe Christ, there's something that you get to do. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Under the old, if you wanted to go into the holiest and worship directly to God, could you? No! And in fact, if you tried, you would be killed. Now you have access directly to the holiest of holy, the tabernacle that's real, made by God into the throne room of God Himself. You have the boldness, the right, because of what Christ does, and you can have boldness because of your understanding of that. That's why it's so important to be diligent in that full assurance of the hope that we have of knowing what He's done From that, you can have boldness as you approach unto God. Now, this is not disrespectful boldness, but this is a confidence in Christ and what He's done. We enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we're able to be in there. By a new and living way, because He lives, lives and reigns today, which He hath consecrated for us. He has made a way into heaven. It's by His body, by His living body, or have a right to be there. Through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. The way is his flesh. He's bathed through the veil. Can you see it right now? No. But you've got an anchor on the other side that's attached to you. 
Right? That hope that's sure and stable is there. You can't see it, but you're able. You're able. Not only that, you have the right to go in and you have a high priest over the house of God, which house we are. So because of that, let us draw near. Let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, recognizing the truth that Christ has sprinkled us, that He has washed us, He has cleansed us and purified us. You can go! And because of that truth, here's the admonition again, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. You've made the profession once. If you've if you joined the church and you've committed, I'm, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. You've made that profession once. So hold it fast! Don't let it go! The truths that you have are real. And they're better than anything else that's out there. And there's nothing that He's done to be unfaithful to you. He's given you no cause to doubt Him. You may not understand all His ways, but if you can understand what He's done and what He's promised, you know enough. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised both the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They're all faithful. He is faithful. And let us consider one another. All right, we're holding fast and doing what? And we're considering one another. We're being thoughtful of one another. We're looking to one another, not just as individuals, but as the church, we're considering one another to provoke or incite or encourage unto love and to good works. We're being diligent in what we know and understand that Christ done. And because of that, we're going to hold fast and then we're going to encourage others in that same endeavor of love and good works. Not doing what? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now, sometimes we look at this, well, you missed two Sundays in a row, not forsaking assemblies of ourselves together. I don't think that's really what it's talking about. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's those who are walking away from following Christ, who are going off on their own and just leaving it all together. Now, should you come to church every Sunday? Yes, you should. And should you be here so you can provoke and encourage others? Yes, absolutely. But we can't forsake what He has put up, what He has established. We need to be here and we need to exhort one another. And so much more, this is even more important, it's even more urgently, as you see the day approaching. Well, what's that the day? That's the day. You know, the day, the real the day, the day day. And when Christ comes, that's the day. And it's approaching. It's nearer now than when you first believed. Okay? For if we sin willfully after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Right? This is not under the old scheme where just wait till next year and we'll offer a new sacrifice and it's going to be whatever. No. If you are abandoning your faith in Christ and walking away from Him um, or the lip service that you may have had in Him, so there's, there's no new Messiah coming. He's not going to offer another sacrifice. What is true now is true for forever. So there's, there's no more sacrifice to look forward to, but a certain fearful looking for of the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye that he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy common thing, and have done despite or insult unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. He's quoting there, Deuteronomy 32.5. And then again, in Psalm 135.14, he quotes, The Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is mighty scary language right there. I don't believe he's writing about children of God. I believe that God is going to continue to sustain them in their faith. He's given them their faith and that he's that begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Christ. But I believe this is referring to those who make a verbal profession of following Christ. 
and at some point down the road, walk away. And in particular at this time, it was Jews who had believed on some level and made some following of them, and then they abandoned that. This will be the crowd that Jesus is going to have to speak to at the end where they said, Lord, I did so much stuff in your name. It may not have been recently. He says, depart from me, or I never knew you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a fact. And but for Christ, that's exactly where we'd be. Falling into the hands of a living God to justly and righteously destroy us. So if your opinion of yourself is pretty high this morning, you need to lower it. And if your opinion of God is not high enough, it's not, you need to raise it. And when we talk about fearing God, it's not just a little bit of fear. This is the one who's worthy of all fear, right? Christ told the disciples, you know, don't worry about the guys who are going to kill you. All they can do is kill you, right? Man can only persecute you and then you're dead. He says, fear God, because he can kill you and he can destroy, destroy you and cast you into hell, right? That's real power, okay? God is worthy of your fear and your respect and your awe. We use that word awesome too cheaply. Oh, that's awesome. Your truck's jacked up. That's not awesome. That's marginally interesting. But awesome, one that deserves awe and wonder and magnitude is the God of all creation who's creating everything and sustains everything and he knows you individually? Why does he care? Lord, I can't tell you. But he does. And he loves you so much that he was willing to send his son who came in obedience to come and suffer. Not just come and conquer. Kind of a carnal, we can see that. All right, the king comes and he conquers, he whooped up. Yeah, makes sense. But rather he came in the form of a servant to suffer, to purchase you. And you weren't worthy to be purchased and neither was I. And to purge your conscience from those dead works. To now serve Him in this life by the faith that He gives you and with patience. And He's given you promises that you're going to be with Him. And so He's going to end this chapter with a charge. He says, remember. Call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, when you first knew the truth of the gospel, when you first heard about Christ, when you first were born again, that what was it like then? Remember that, that first love as it's described in Revelation? Remember then! Remember then! What happened? Ye endured great afflictions. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like the televangelist. What? I believe now life's perfect. No, it says you endured a great afflictions. But how did they respond to that? Partly, whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. So it's that you were publicly mocked. Right? It's like you were put in the, uh, I don't know what you call those things. Stockade, right? And what do they do? They throw fruit at you and they make fun of you and they laugh at you. It's a public shaming. That's what it is. I mean, that to be confined there is inconvenient, but it's really the shaming element. Right? He says, that's what you were. You were a gazing stock both by reproaches, verbally said, and afflictions, people who are hurting you or harming you. Because why? Because you're following Christ. And that's not popular. Not really. And partially because whilst you became companions of them that were so used, you said, this man is my friend. He's a follower of Christ and I'm a companion with him. Well, we don't like him. And if, you, if you're a friend with him, we're not going to like you. Oh, well, let me not be a friend with him. Right, that's our natural reaction. But it says... You had those associations with those who were following Christ and you didn't care that you had reproach heaped upon you by the world at the same time. For you had compassion of me and my bond. So the Hebrew writer, whether this is Paul or someone else, I don't know, doesn't say, but you had compassion on the writer here in my bonds and took joyfully in the spoiling of your goods. They came and sent him carnal stuff to help him. They spoiled their own stuff. Why? Why? Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better 
and an enduring substance. You knew the truth. When you were first illuminated, you were willing to suffer hardship. You were willing to be associated with those who weren't popular by the world's standard. You were willing to give of yourself in a sacrificial way, knowing that you've been given a whole lot more, and it's just a matter of time until you receive that promise. So remember that time. Remember when you were willing to face those things head on because your love for Christ was so fresh and so real. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Don't walk away. Don't put your hope down. Don't throw it off as if it's some big deal. Not a big deal. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence or your hope, which hath great recompense and reward. Your hope is yet to come. You can't see it yet, but it is coming. You used to live like it was real. Live like it again. For ye have need of patience. You do. And I have need of patience because things can be hard. And I bet the people he's writing to are having a hard time now. You have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. You live by faith and in patience you live your life. And afterwards, and while you're living, you're doing the will of God, you receive the promise. For yet a little while, this is a truth, this is truth, this is a fact. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, Christ, will come. And will not tarry. Now, is he going to come by your standard of when short? No. He's got his own perfect standard, and I can't tell you what it is, but he's going to come. It's not because he's late. It's not because he can't get everything out the door on time. It's he's coming in his perfect time. He will come. Verse 38. Now the just, the elect, the righteous, his, what will they do? They will live by faith your whole life. He's given you that faith. Your faith will be manifested out in your life. But if any draw back, so if a man doesn't live by faith, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. Why? Because that man has revealed that he didn't have true faith. He didn't have the faith that God gives. It may have been something that he's conjured up and he kind of heard it and he believed it. But if you're drawing back and you're abandoning Christ, my soul has no pleasure in you. You have not demonstrated that you're one of His. You're bearing fruits, but the fruits are briars and thorns. But we are not of them. This is a description for God's children. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition. That means ruin. But of those that believe. How long do you believe? To the saving of the soul. That's at the very end. That's when you receive that rest. You're not receiving it because you've been so faithful. This works. There ain't nothing about it. It's grace alone. But the only reason you've got any faith, that you have faith, is because God has given it to you. And we're going to live that out our whole life. Because with patience, he that will come is going to come. And he's not delaying, he's not dawdling, he's coming. And he's going to bring with him that perfect rest. And so that sets up chapter 11, which we won't try and tackle today. That the just shall live by faith. He's going to go, right? Hebrew audience, he's going to say, look at this pattern over and over and over of these individuals who lived out that faith. This is how their faith was manifested. They believed that God is who He says He is. And their actions reflected that faith. So we'll look at that next time. And the Lord bless you.